and welcome to the Digital PR Podcast with me, Louise Parker, and my lovely co-host, Steve Baker. Due to intense popular demand, we are back for a second season and we will be again chatting to some of the digital PR greats, discussing the ins and outs of our industry. This season, we'll be touching on topics like crisis comms, freelancing, the great office debate, digital PR in America, and we'll also be getting the perspectives of in-house clients and journalists on what they really think about digital PRs. Excitingly, this season, we also have a sponsor. Ooh. All six episodes are sponsored by our friends at CoverageBook. We all use CoverageBook in the PropellerNet team, and so do agencies and brands all over the world. It's an amazing tool that creates PR reports in minutes, drastically reducing the time that would typically be spent on reporting. Steve, would you like to know a fun fact? Yes, please. (laughs) One agency team saved $2,000 of PR budget every month when they switched to using the tool. Pretty good. What we love about it is that it gives you realistic, industry-leading metrics that you don't need to have a data science degree to understand. It does all the clippings for you, so no more boring copying and pasting, and it just looks super snazzy, so you don't have to be a designer to showcase your coverage like a pro. You can visit coveragebook.com and sign up for a free trial to see why some of the best digital PR practitioners in the world depend on Coveragebook. All right, on to our episode. Our guest today is the one and only Andy Barr, CEO of award-winning agency 10 Yetis Digital. Having spent nearly 20 years running the agency and honing his craft, what Andy doesn't know about digital PR isn't worth knowing. He's one of the most engaging speakers around on all things PR, digital and social, is a must-follow on Twitter or should I say X, for his spectacular gift game alone, and has recently been all over the press commenting on various crisis comms situations, which makes him the perfect guest for today's topic, how to avoid a digital PR crisis. How do I live up to that? Well, absolute nonsense. Thank you very much for having me on. Very flattering. It counts for nothing. But no, I've I've been a massive fan of of your podcast. I was very honoured and couldn't believe it when you asked me to, to, to make an appearance. Oh, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Genuinely, we really appreciate you making time. Um, as a starter, uh, and for those that don't know you, and I can't think that that's many in the PR industry, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so it's incredibly boring. I started life, no one would believe this, I started life as a polit- political analyst, worked in lobbying, uh, boring as fuck, and I worked for a government utility company, essentially, um, helping them with like off-gem inquiries, which is what happened the most when you work through a government utility. Um, I then, um, because because I basically know the, knew the laws of the electricity industry because I'm that kind of exciting guy, um, I when, when there was a, a crisis with the company, they asked if I'd consider going into the PR team. I went into the PR team. First few weeks, um, the, the power company, we, we turned off millions of people by accident um during um an england football game my then head of comms um quit and i was left at probably i don't know early 20s running the comms division temporarily because i was terrible at it ended up getting sacked quite rightly um and uh, i ended up running the the comms division for this sort of government utility for (laughs) for a few months i was fucking terrible at it but anyway and then um i thought yeah i quite like this pr business i'm gonna crack on i've got to remember the truth from the lies now so yeah then i went into financial services to do um comms for them i worked for a building society which again i was sacked from but it was a real it was probably the worst career move i ever made i just i just don't fit that kind of twee organization um 
went to AXA, who at that time was the fifth largest company in the world, to go and do uh, a variety of comms for them, but ended up doing, you know, the kind of horrible comms like, you know, if we didn't pay out someone for a holiday claim, you know, because they ticked a form wrong, it was my job to try and defend it, which I couldn't. Um, and then obviously, I say obviously, why would I say obviously, went to go, you know, I had to shut down a division of AXA in Iceland, um, the country, not the shop. And I was terrible at that as well. I didn't get sacked from that place though. I, um, I then went to go and work for First Group, um, lovely company, largest passenger transport company in the world. They own obviously G GWR, they own Greyhound bus in America, Yellow School bus in America, um, all the various disaster bus companies in the uk so that was just like real crisis comms day in day out you know getting spat at in the face by customers at, at public forums that was a real career high and then i just thought fuck that i'm going to start my own agency and do something a bit more fun and there we go 18 years later it's you know just good fun wow I didn't expect. Boring, I didn't. It's, it's not, not boring at all. at all. I didn't expect such a varied, varied history. You haven't. I don't think you mentioned the word digital PR once in that in that phrase. But that has become a new, newish uh, word over the last couple of um, years for the kind of PR which focuses a bit more on the kind of SEO impact and focusing on links. Do you class yourself as a digital PR now, or do you still? class yourself as a more generic kind of like comms professional um and do you think there is a difference let me take a step back there the downside of having an old person on like me is that i always tell a fucking story but so crisis comms is what i did day in day out i set up the agency because i wanted to have do more fun stuff so my background was in sort of crisis comms and financial services and stuff like that so we did financial services pr when 10 years first started because that's what i knew um and, and we won a client that was really big in the um in the online money saving space and we were doing all this financial services pr for them and the, and the owner the ceo said could you take your approach and try and do it to consumer pr so what we would call middle of the paper which is where um financial stories used to be could we try and move our content to front of paper and he sort of sat down and explained why and at this point there was no digital pr there was no online pr it was just pr right and and if you got coverage in the front of the paper it went online and you got follow links follow links were the you know were, were what happened i was going to try and use a latin phrase then but i'm not intelligent enough to remember what it is <laughs> but links you know links came with it so did this consumer pr it was fucking easy it was so much easier than financial services pr because it was less scrutiny you know you're just banging any old shite out and and it would get pick up and and I say this deliberately now because I like people to come along and go, you're talking nonsense. I honestly think we invented digital or online PR in the UK. We were way ahead of the game. My business partner was an SEO. You know, we really understood the value of links and we were the first to really get it. And we spam the shit into it. You know, we the, the client that I'm talking about is my voucher coach. You know, we took that from zero start. I think he's gone on record and saying, you know, he bought, he built the website for 400 quid in, um, you know, some guy overseas and it sold for 55 million in the end. And the only marketing he did at the start was PR. And that's what we did, consumer PR. And I just did it because it was so much easier. And I didn't call it, I had called it online PR sometimes when I was winding people up. But, um, <laughs> but now obviously just the full story of that is people came along like, 
you guys, JBH, Rise at Seven, and you were just like, actually, we're going to take it to the next level, and you've done it much better than I could have, you know, ever ever taken it to. And and that's kind of what's happened, really. People have come along and just overtaken us and and took it to the next level. And I and I salute you guys for doing that as well. Do you think now, then, as it's progressed and more people are doing it, do you think it does sit differently from? regular PR, traditional PR, or however you term it? Or do you see it as all part and parcel of one thing, maybe with just different kind of KPIs and goals? I don't really see a difference between all the different elements of PR. I kind of see that there's different divisions of PR, the same way that you have different divisions of the marketing mix, like direct mail, ads, and that kind of thing. But in PR, we have you would obviously have digital PR because they're the noisiest fuckers out there. Um, <laughs> and then we've got product PR people who you know, are doing fantastic things. We've got consumer PR people that are helping people with reputation management. And then you've got crisis comms as well. So we've got loads of different areas. It, it became a really big thing because you had digital PR people, sorry, you had knobbed SEO people going out and just going to people like Charles Arthur, the, you know, the tech editor of The Guardian as was, and just saying, oh, here's a, here's a crap tech story. Give me a follow link. And he'd go quite rightly like, well, get lost, dickhead. You know, and um, we, we did a, a really funny competition once where... Um, you could win a t-shirt that said i survived the uh, charles arthur pitch and because i think he he wrote a he wrote a column called die pr die so we had that put on the t-shirt like um frankie says relax so yeah i don't really see a difference between um between digital and, and and normal pr that makes sense i'm with you on it to be honest i think there's different facets of pr and always has been but people personally i think people like to overcomplicate as we often do in the marketing industry and sort of like semantics gets involved and people mm. debate endlessly and it maybe doesn't need to be. But you did mention something there uh, with the Charles Arthur story. So digital PR is often seen as kind of by some people, I guess, as all about links, whereas more traditional PR has had reputation at the heart of it. With that in mind, do you think digital PR has the potential to kind of harm a brand in any way and and kind of have you seen any examples of of where it's not worked because maybe that digital pr is thinking just about the link rather than the story they're getting across the message and what they're saying about the brand well i think there's two elements to that again coming back to an old person on a podcast <laughs> i think you need to look at look at all of it so if we think about digital pr and online pr or whatever you want to call it it fell out of really big affiliates who uh, are you know in in the online industry you have the the pioneers of who drives industries forward it's porn you know porn is the thing that brings brought through you know got rid of buffering and online movies and vr and things like that and then i would say the second level from that is is probably affiliate marketing they are the masters of online marketing because of the the way that they go about trying to get links and everything like that so affiliates really drove um digital pr you know if you think about the big brands like confuse.com go compare my batch codes batch cloud you know, they were the ones that were hunting for hundreds of links every month. But then affiliates had its own reputation problem. So obviously, famously, the ASOS um, CEO said, described affiliates as grubby little people in their back bedroom, which obviously people like Confused.com would disagree with that. And that's where this kind of reputation, I think, digital reputation issue has come from. And that's now followed through. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're doing a really crap, I, I, well, I, I give it a really good example. What are they called? Moe, was it LVMH, Louis Vuitton, oh, yeah, Moe, yeah. Hennessy? Hmm. You know, they probably, they go to all of us, RA, they probably came to you as well. They go to like 20 digital agencies at one time and they said, you know, we really want to get some links into this page, right? And I was just like, Jesus Christ, 
your brand PR team would shit it if they knew the kind of stuff that we're going to do, you, you know, or we, mm. we would suggest. So there is always going to be that reputational issue. Now, no, no other examples really come to mind. I'm sure if you said something, oh, oh actually, let's fucking put the boot into Interflora. I was part of that. What happened to them? Because at that time I had an infographic website where you gave us an infographic, we would upload it and we'd give you a follow link. Uh, if you didn't mind how long it took for it to go up, two weeks you know it was free if you wanted it quickly you had to pay 25 quid and it'd be up within a day cha-ching um, <laughs> now now obviously interflow i'm not going to name the agency i don't think they're about now actually so it doesn't really matter but the agency came to us and they said yeah we want this infographic for interflora putting up we put it up and as i'm sure loads of other places put it up and i guess essentially it was a paid for link Three days later, into not because of us, but because oh, everyone knows the backstory of Matt mm. Cutts getting in touch with Interflora and saying, look, you've got to sort this out. And they ignored it and didn't and whatever. But they got nuked out of the search for, for their aggressive paid link strategy. So we then got a call on the Monday saying, can you take it down? Well, it's 100 quid to take it down, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, you know, let's, let's be honest. Interflora is a prime example of that. They had all this spammy link building going on in the background by... Uh, you know, agencies that probably didn't really understand the the nuance of tr not traditional PR, but mainstream PR. Mm. And it caused them that reputational problem. They got done for buying links and got nuked. I feel like it's not a kind of SEO podcast without a mention of Interflora. So thank you for ticking that that box. <laughs> because it's Sorry, a great I should have said study. allegedly somewhere, but <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. But it's the best example, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's um, a lesson to be delisted. <laughs> <laughs> I guess on a similar kind of note, and I feel like you're probably I probably can anticipate your answer to this, but if your agency is going about link building by talking to publishers, sending them stories, getting links off the back of that in kind of, you know, tit for tat kind of way, but you're not calling yourself a PR, but you are acting on behalf of a brand, maybe you're calling yourself just content marketing or anything like that. Do you feel like actually no what you are doing is PR? I ask because this is something that I like always find a bit weird <laughs> um, because I'm like, if you're acting on behalf of a brand with a story that like you've kind of said can influence their reputation, then what you're doing is PR. But I would be intrigued to get your thoughts. I mean, are these these knobheads that call themselves like outreach ninjas and stuff like that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Good that I mean? bucket, I mean, yeah. It, it is PR, isn't it? I think over the last two years, maybe there is a slight nuance in that those of us who are doing quite a lot in the affiliate space, we're now talking to the commercial teams rather than the actual journalists. So we're saying, to, so for example, you know, we've got a, a client that does, um, oh, well, I won't go into a big home, uh, lots of furniture, uh, basically, and it's quite high value and it's quite high end. And so we'll go, you know, there's only so many ways you can go to a journalist and say, I've got this really sexy story about a sofa for example, right? It's just not, it's not brilliant, is it? Do you know what I mean? Um, so in, in fact, we go to the commercial teams and we say, oh, actually, do you know that they pay 10% commission on AWIN, affiliate window, sorry, whatever you want to call it. And then the commercial team make editorial out of it, or they go to editorial team and say, all oh, right, can you do a top 20 features on wipe downable sofas, you know, that kind of thing <laughs> for kids, not for perfect, and, um, <laughs> you know, and they know that they're going to push this brand because it's got a higher commission rate on AWIN. So, so yeah, the, the nuance is, is changing, but no, those people that are just asking for, for a link, they are PR people because they're talking to journalists and they, they can, 
I mean, what's wrong with saying you're a PR person? We're cool as fuck. Yeah. Thank you for answering in the way that I wanted you to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to hear. I'd agree. I don't know. I don't know what the issue is, but yeah, it, it, it definitely, there's definitely something where people don't want to call themselves PR. It's like, I'm a link builder and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like content or, marketing or something. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Strange. It's just the overcomplication of it again. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think people go wrong when it comes to sort of making a you know a PR misstep with their story? I mean, we can probably between the three of us think of loads of examples. Like, but are there common things that you see or have seen which make you cringe a bit? Either the way they're preparing a story, the kind of stories they're going out with, how they're pitching it. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on the the common misstep. I don't know where to start. <laughs> I, I think- Great. It, it, it is it is cringe, isn't it? You see some stories where people maybe have been so desperate to get something out there to react to it that they don't really understand maybe that it's in a bit poor taste, which is ironic for me to say that given some <laughs> of the stuff that we've done. But I would always say that we've tried to go down the humorous route rather than the offensive route and some mm. stuff's offensive. I think um, it, it's no secret that I have, you know, I have a dabble in the affiliate space myself. I have three or four publisher platforms in, in our own right, in, in my own right. Obviously, we get some of the people at the agency to work on it. So I am, I'm on a couple of uh, news databases around the niches that we run them in. I Fuck me, some of the press releases that we get. I mean, I, I could write a book on how not to do it. But one of the things I'm really hating and I really feel bad for journalists for now is this, these automated tools for outreach. So I, I don't know what company it is. I imagine it's, I mean, I love Buzzsumo, but I imagine it's something to do with Buzzsumo or someone like that. Hmm. You know, where, they, where you, the press release goes out and then um, it's like a sales filter, basically. Two days later, they'll say, they know you've read it because they've got some creepy tracking in there, which again is fine. And so then you get another automated email. And then three days later, you get someone else from the team, automated email. Oh, hi, I, I noticed that you read Sophie's email. Sophie's a terrible term. Steve's email, do you know what I mean? From three days ago about this story. Just wanted to circle back to it. And I just think if I was a journalist, I would block that and I would block that at at domain level because that kind of automated process of PR is crap and it, and it is, it annoys journalists. We, you know, we, we talk to obviously, or I, you know, I talk to loads of journalists just from being old and it's the number one thing that people talk about is this whole, uh, that journalists talk about is this sort of automated approach to PR, which is just painful. I'm amazed that the you know more and more agencies aren't blocked at domain level for that. Yeah, it's interesting because there are. I think I literally just saw a, a tweet from Iona, um, who's a freelancer. Mm. She literally said something like the thought of sending you know like a mass email to an automated list of journalists like gives me the ick. Like, and a lot of people were agreeing with it. And but on the flip side, I have seen LinkedIn posts from people doing digital PR saying. My media list was six thousand journalists long, and and there's no way mm. that media list has been manually done. That has to be automation behind that, or or just a clicking some boxes and getting a big list of of media contacts from it. So it's definitely being recommended, and I don't know if it's always happened or, like you said, it is happening more. It probably sounds like it is just happening more, maybe because the power is there to do it, so people are taking advantage of it. You still get, I still like someone on Twitter, you know, either like an ad or a sponsor thing or something that just popped up in my feed. And there are people, wherever they, I can't remember where this guy was based, but he was sort of pitching for like a, give me your business because I know it's a numbers game. So the more pitches you send out, the more kind of joy you're going to get, which essentially is selling yourself on a scattergun approach, which obviously mm. journalists are going to hate. But I... I question, and it'd be really good to 
hear your thoughts on this because when I first started in PR, so this is like pre propelling it, it feels like it hasn't changed that much. It's just the method has changed. So I was literally, my first job was being given a press release. I had no input into the writing of it or the creation of a media list. It was like, there's a press release. There's a, like a list of phone numbers. Here's a phone. Call up everyone on that list and sell them the story. And like I was trying to sell health stories on like my first week to, I think her name's Sarah Bosley, like the health editor of The the Guardian, and just getting like absolutely ripped apart. But it was, they saw it as a numbers mm. game, that first mm. company. It's like the more people you call, the more success you're going to get. And it's just, I, I never saw it as true. But did you, do you ever have to do anything like that? Or did you, how did you, how do you navigate uh, it? Is it all targeted? I, I'm very similar to you when, you know, I call it having a proper job and I worked in the house. Um, I remember calling Charles Ray, from his son i think he was on the business or finance desk trying to flog some mortgage story to him and he just was like who's this is it oh, andy bar from xyz brand and he said fuck off andy bar and put the phone down on me so <laughs> i mean no it, it doesn't work does it and now uh, i think there's two elements to this obviously I, i'm not going to shy away from it when we started out we definitely spammed stuff because that's you know there, there was that's just the way it was there was thousands more journalists than there are now um, so your media list could build to be that kind of number that who you felt were targeted. But I always feel like some element of research went into it. You know, we didn't go to the motor impress or the finance story, mm. that kind of thing. Mm. Now, as time has gone on, obviously, it's all moved to this hyper-focused, hyper you know, building a really targeted mailing list. And, and obviously that does work. But you get to a Wednesday afternoon and you've done your focused list and you've got fuck all for it. The temptation is always there to be like, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to send it to this media list I built last year that's 100 long about a different campaign because I think that might fit. And that's where you kind of get into that. You fall into that trap and getting criticized on social media through desperation. And, and we've all been there. We've all had a Wednesday afternoon, you know, bollocking off a client because we've not had pickup yet. And we've got a report to do on Friday. So I can see where that desperation comes from. Mm. But it is, you know, in a dwindling media land where, you know, let's face it, the, the press is dominated by freelance writers now instead of, you know, paid for employed journalists direct by the, the media. People are desperate and that's how that happens, I think. Mm. I'm not right ever, but that's what I think. No, I'd, I'd agree. I think uh, we would always advise as well, like, and you just, you've hit the land on the head. Often it comes from like panic or not mm -hmm. really just stopping and thinking. So like if something's not going as well as you think it should be, or you're getting that bollock in from the client, it's like, just slow down. Don't sort of speed things up and just pitch to more people. Let's consider the story again. Like who have we sent mm, it to? Rehash it. Yeah, rehash it, that kind of thing. It's way like... I, I definitely went down the panic route early on in my career. Yeah. It was like, I'll just phone more people. That'll be fine. <laughs> That'll fix it. Or email more people. But now it's like, just slow down, relax. It's like, it's not the end of the world. That's, the for me, one of the best bits of PR. It's never really the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of end up feeling sorry, a bit sorry for journalists. I mean, like, I, I write a column for, a, for an industry mag and... I get sent so much scandal every week. That, you know, I always say, like, one of my biggest nightmares it's not my browsing history it's someone seeing my dms on um oh, the amount juicy. of stuff i get sent you know gossip and stuff like that <laughs> but i don't really get involved in all of those journal pr spats anymore because i do feel sorry for the journalists and sometimes you're gonna snap you're gonna have a bad day and you're gonna call someone a twat you know or mm. why are you sending me this and then obviously all of us all of us poor prs come out oh what what about me what you know be nice to me da, da, da. well 
fucking bring it on yourself. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Thanks. Just do a bit of due diligence. I mean, I get it. It's horrible to get a shitty email, but you know what? I've had so many shitty emails and um, I've never really felt the need to go on social media and tell people, unless I find it funny. Mm. If someone really goes two-footed in on me and sends me a fantastically abusive <laughs> message, I will talk about that because, you know, it, it's good to talk about all the fails that you have as well as the successes, isn't it? So I'm not part of that brigade that's like, let's out everyone that's mean. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's not, but fucking just get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> on on the subject of things being on Twitter and, and not going well, um, mm. Because obviously you do talk a lot about kind of crisis, uh, crisis yeah. comms. Maybe in your DMs you have some people being like, oh God, Andy, I completely fucked up. This has happened. What on earth should I do? Or if you don't, if someone did email um, DM you that, what would be your kind of advice to someone? And I guess that could be a journalist has tweeted my pitch and said it was terrible. Or it could be the story is already out there and readers are hating it and think that it's offensive or think that it's just terrible <laughs> like any sort of thing like that where do you what do you do what's your kind of first step and what's your advice well i think again a couple of things in that one i am i feel like i am super approachable i you know i want people to come to me I, i'm one of those annoying personality types where i want to help people i think we were talking about this before when i was absolutely fucking smashed at that awards deal and i was chatting <laughs> at you two until you sort of edged away but um you know i'm always amazed that like when i go to things like that i don't you know, I don't really connect with people, you know, from our industry. And I find that really weird because I do feel I'm quite approachable. And if anyone came to me with anything, I would try and help them. And I think about all the fuck ups I've made from Ben Goldacre calling me at midnight to, to tell, to tell me he was about to announce he was out of me for doing something shady. Um, so I, that he considered to be shady in the science world to having tweets read out in parliament of something that i said as an example you know rory challenge jones called me the gerald ratner of pr um <laughs> there's nothing you can fuck up on with to a certain degree do you know what I mean that, that i haven't done so i feel like i've got a wealth of experience of fuck ups to share with people but the first thing is it's like when you're in the eye of the storm you are going to panic there's no way around that but it passes very quickly especially nowadays mm. where you know, you look at, um, I can't remember the agency, and I'm not going to say them because I feel it'd be a, a bit crappy, but there was an agency that had all that drama with the Taylor Swift, you know, eco flight story, whatever. Mm. And I saw all that going on. I just dropped a couple of them a message and was like, do you know what? Don't worry about it. Do you know what I mean? Th th this too shall pass. I can't remember who said it, probably Mel Gibson. But, um, you know, <laughs> just, just don't worry about it. In the moment, it's going to be carnage, but it will all calm down and it will all seem fine. Sweaty gate. Went on my first, this is a really good example. I went on my first lunch after having twins with my then wife and PR Week rang me for a quote about an agency that had been outed for using one of their staff as a case study for some sort of sweat deodorant. And I said, and I, I'm happy to talk this through now. I said at the time, yeah, but it goes on. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it does, because when I worked in financial services, we get a call from uh, Sunday Times, Daily Mail. We need a we need a case study of someone on a two year fixed rate mortgage, and we need to go and get a picture. And shock horror, it'd be one of the members of staff from our bank that was the case study. So that's always gone on since you know since forever. But yeah, get in touch. I'm more than happy to help, and I, you know I'm easy to find. So yeah, that's that's no worries. Do you think a lot of the kind of advice then is more like reassurance rather than you know like 
there's not like a textbook, okay, number one, you do this, and then you do this, and then everything's going to be fine. It's more just like, like as you said, this will pass. It's a bit yeah. shit right now, but we'll get through it. it. As a person, personally, yeah, there's no textbook approach. I think corporate, so, you know, my, my, from my crisis comms point of view, and ultimately I've done that all my career. I really enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy it far more than fucking link building. Um, <laughs> crisis comms is brilliant. Worked with some of the biggest brands around the world on it. And that is a bit more formulaic, you know, apologize if you can, you know, if you're not going to trigger any legal consequence, announce an investigation, you know, all the normal stuff that, that every crisis person talks about it is a bit more formulaic, but when it's personal and it's you in the firing line, no, you just got to panic for the first day and then see what happens. But I, I am a living example of, you know, surviving disasters that I've caused myself. <laughs> Yeah, it does. I mean, it all passes, as you say. That's that's why one of the reasons why I kind of gravitated towards PR, because a lot of my friends were going into like quite serious jobs, like, you know, becoming surgeons and things, where if you're like hung over and you sort of slip or something, you're going to actually cause some damage. Whereas with PR, it's like nothing I can do is that is that bad. But you on the crisis comm side, like how would you deal with things with the client if you've really mucked up in some way like I, I can't think of a, a specific example but like if you've I don't know offered like a bit of comment off the record or chatted or revealed something you shouldn't have and it's got out to a journalist because that that's when things can get a bit hairy can't it and like share prices can drop and you know investigations start and things well we've had two situations in our history that have made me sort of shudder or immediately sweat through my t-shirt one is uh, a junior member of our team a long, long time ago changed a word to regulated in a healthcare release because they felt that it gave more gravitas to the story, which it did, but they weren't regulated. And the, the sort of medical press picked up on it and we were on a bit of a sticky wicket. So the press release had been approved and, and that person had, you know, just unfortunately made the decision to just add the word regulated in it caused us loads of hassle. Yeah. But... You know, we, we, we got through it and it's always, and I always say this in, um, in any crisis comp situation, it's about trying to be transparent, isn't it? And I think you just have to go to the client and say, do you know what? We, we fucked up. Now, obviously there's varying degrees of fucked up and that's one way you probably end up losing the client unless, you know, unless nothing comes out, which in this case, there was no, you know, there was no story that came out because we were just honest and said, look, that's us. We ballsed up on the press release. And then one really innocent one, we got a stock image from a website uh no no we bought a stock image that's right we were all legit above board and we used it in a um we used it in a press release an editorial stock image which obviously you pay a bit more for and the person that bought it didn't sort of twig but it was actually a minor celebrity's kid and oh. it had been put on there by someone like splash images or somebody mm. like back in the day do you yeah. know what I mean, when they used to do that and we got a takedown notice served on us on our website like within hours of that going out. And I couldn't work out why. I can't say who the celeb is, mm. um, but they were American, big music celeb. And um, they were outraged, I guess quite rightly. But we bought the picture mm. legitimately. We were able to show that to the hosting company. It all calmed down on the end. But those are the times that I've really thought, oh, Christ, you know, that's a, that's a, a tricky thing to manage. On that occasion with the car one, where the client had, you know, you'd you'd come up with a story, you'd got their sign off, and then obviously mm. it, it didn't go down so well with certain people. Who do you kind of see as to blame? As in, like, is it equal blame to the client and to the agency because the agency came up with it, but also the client signed it off? Or in those kind of scenarios, is it always that the kind of 
agency has to fall on their sword and say like, oh, it was all our fault. Sorry. Well, I think in this occasion, we all celebrated because it got an absolute ton of coverage. Um, <laughs> basically, the story was the company that was the most traded in car in America on We Buy Any Car, we said was the least popular car. And with hindsight, you know, we've let the story get in the way of the truth. <laughs> and, um, you know, we could have worded it better. But it got a load of coverage. The client was fairly relaxed because they weren't getting threatened by the car company mm. we were because we put the press release out. And some some snitch of a journo sent it to the press office of the car oh company. Oh, so, um, you know, you just take it on the chin, don't you, and wait for the legal letters to roll in. And then um, and then you deal with them as and when, you know, with uh, another money-saving client. They got themselves wrapped up in an ASA investigation. Nothing to do with us, luckily. You know, and you just deal with it as and when it happens. But I think the good thing about working with people that have worked in a crisis before, you know what the next steps usually are. So I know that the the main driver behind that ASA complaint was that it was the last case that the ASA were going to handle under those particular laws. So they wanted to make a big sort of hullabaloo out of it. And we made sure that, you know, we communicated that in all of our responses. So I think it's about understanding where the driving force is coming from, from the negativity that you're getting. That's fair. And what's the, um, I know we talked a little bit about panicking, but in those kind of scenarios, like you talk really eloquently and, and like reassuringly, I think, to a lot of listeners about how, um, you know, things will pass and it's not the end of the world and, you know, just to sort of remain calm. What do you think are the worst things you could do if like a story's, going badly is it just the the kind of basics like don't don't get aggressive on social media and start defending it to the hilt like what would you advise not to do well i think there's so many there's so many things you know essentially it comes down to don't lie to try and get out of it and that is temptation obviously sort of early on in agency land having worked in-house for some really you know for some really big companies that did some really bad things deliberately it's always an accident when when crisis happens no one thinks right i'm gonna fucking drop a bomb here do you know what i mean it's always an accident so i think it's about not lying to try and cover things up and i think the coots example is a really good example of of that you know basically they didn't agree with farage's views whether that's right or wrong that's for more intelligent people than me to, to to debate and instead of just saying that they made up that nonsense about him not ticking the financial wealth box and you know that was essentially a fib to to try and cover up the origins of the story so that is you know that is a really good recent example so don't don't fib that that's the, the best way if you can be transparent you know, you have to be the, the area that always causes issues is where you've got the legal ramifications. So I think was it uh, there was a I, I I can't remember the name of the company, so I'll say it's generic. But there was a holiday company where a couple of kids uh, sadly passed away from carbon monoxide poisoning, and the holiday company they didn't say sorry, uh, and they couldn't. Realistically, we beat them up. I did a column about you know how. It's just inhumane to not say sorry. But realistically, they'd have had the legal team in their ear saying, do not apologize, never say sorry, because that's admitting liability. Mm. And that's, you know, that will be leapt on by the, the prosecution um, lawyers when it goes to court. So that's the difficulties when, you know, everything, every comms person or every CEO that's put out to front up something like this, they want to say sorry because you do if you've caused someone hurt or distress. And I think that's, that's the difficulty, you know, and not getting that mixed up with that being a lie. That's not a lie. That's just you've got a legal person in your ear telling you not to do it. 
Yeah, that I mean, that is a consideration that's very, very important. And especially when it's like in a more serious story. The with the kind of digital PR hat on um, and thinking about things that if you shouldn't do, let's say you've done a campaign, you've got a campaign page on your website and everyone hates your story and is ripping it to absolute shreds. Is it right or wrong to just delete the story? Do you go to the journalist and say, look, you covered it. Can you just take it down? Because this is causing me a lot of heat. Is that Are those possibilities or is that a, a no-no? Did you do the furniture story? Is this what we're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We didn't no. do the furniture story, no. I mean, um, but I do think that is one one of the most recent ones that has been out there, um, which got absolutely torn to shreds. And I do feel for the person who was behind it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the agency. You'd have to tell me offline who it was. But I have some, I mean, I've never been in that situation where I've needed to go and get a story taken down. What I do know is with that furniture company example, being honest, and I don't think this is any, this is new news. The people who run that company won't give a fuck. They want the links because they know that they want to rank for cheap office chair and, and they won't care. If, if we don't want to talk about that, because that's a bit controversial, let's talk about Protein World, who were a client of ours for a little bit. And he, the CEO of Protein World has gone on record as saying that that campaign that they did about Beachbody mm. Ready, they got yeah. absolutely fucking nailed quite rightly because it was, you know, really really dodgy campaign you know that added uh two million to their bottom line because the controversy and this comes back to google not being able to understand positive or negative coverage uh, the controversy moved them to the top of the rankings for protein and all gym knobheads care about uh, it's hard to believe but i am one of them it's just where to get the cheapest protein they don't care about the ethics of the company i know we all pretend now that we do care about the ethics of, of where we can, where, where all of our products come from, but they don't in the protein world. So, so yeah, you know, they were never going to go and ask for that coverage to be taken down. And I think, um, I think it's probably the same with the furniture company. I imagine the PR agency were a bit like, oh fuck, you know, what have we done? Especially as they were potentially going to get ousted for doing it. Um, and I had a lot of people send it to me, but I didn't do anything with it. Or did actually. I think I, I talked about it once and then someone from the agency said, actually, can you not mm. do this for bad PR or something like that? Yeah, anyway, so no, I have never had that. But I think that furniture company wouldn't have cared. Mm. They'd have liked the links that come from it. It's like that guy, the dentist in America who shot the lion. You know, he had the best ranking fucking dental practice in America after that because, you know, all of the world's media wrote about mm. him and where he worked. So... There's a nuance, isn't there? You know, Google doesn't understand positive or negative coverage still. I don't know the dentist. Did you say dentist who shot a lion story? You know, Cecil they... the lion. Absolute prick. Not the lion. The lion was lovely. But <laughs> yeah. dentist shot a lion on one of those, you know, manufactured hunting tours oh, they right, do in okay. South Africa. It went, he, he was quite a famous lion. You know, probably had his own TV show. I don't know. <laughs> and, and it went everywhere about what a horrible guy this chap was. But it said, and he worked at XYZ Dental Practice. And the knock-on effect was that his dental practice in, but for God knows anywhere, um, ranked number one for dentistry in, in America <laughs> Yeah, because he'd had all this coverage. I think we're going to move on to our final question, which we're going to ask all guests. What do you think the future of digital PR is? Can be, you can interpret it how you want, but it can be in the next few months or the next decade. I mean, you've been in the game a, a fair while and like be really interesting to hear your views on like where you think it's it's going next. God, that's a question. I, mean, I imagine everyone's going to talk about AI. 
which you know which does play a role, but I'm not overly fussed or concerned about it. Until Google, until Google finds a fundamental way to rank websites without looking at links, I don't think there's going to be a great change. You know, there's especially in the bit that we talked about quite a lot today in terms of digital PR. I think people are always going to chase follow links, aren't they? Or um, what is it that desperate PRs call it? Uh, implied links. I, I see <laughs> case study after case study of, oh, no, implied links count. And you think, yeah, fuck off. Uh, <laughs> we've, done, we've done tests after tests that, that shows that, you know, implied links carry nowhere near the weight that, uh, you know, that a follow link does. So I think until Google has a seismic change in how it assesses websites, to take links out of it, I think there's always going to be that digital PR industry. I think in in the world where brands want to be seen to be more compassionate, I think there's going to be a lot more push on the, what we would have called consumer PR and um, you know basic press office function PR to to position brand position brands in a better light. I'd like you know I'd like to have some golden nugget, but I'm not intelligent enough. I leave that to the the brainy folk like Steve Waddington and, and Sarah Waddington, you know, to come up with the stuff that's going to happen in the future. I'm very much the blunt instrument knocking on the door. <laughs> well, Andy, as a blunt instrument, you've been <laughs> tremendous and we really, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Andy, for joining us. Um, it's been very enlightening. Loved chatting to you. Um, and thank you for everyone who's listening. Um, please follow the Digital PR podcast to be told when more episodes are out. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.